Whenever I get gloomy with the state of the world, I think about the arrivals gate at Heathrow Airport. General opinion starting to make out that we live in a world of hatred and greed. But I don't see that. Seems to me that love is everywhere. Often it's not particularly dignified or newsworthy, but it's always there. Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, husbands and wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, old friends. When the planes hit the Twin Towers, as far as I know, none of the phone calls from the people on board were messages of hate or revenge. They were all messages of love. If you look for it, I've got a sneaky feeling you'll find that love actually is all around. You know, one of the strongest beliefs that we have is that love is absolutely essential to our lives. And it almost doesn't matter what belief system we have, what religion, what philosophy or worldview that we have. We believe that love is foundational to the human experience. And we all want love. We all need love. But there's something else. There's actually something else, another ingredient. I think it's the key ingredient for love, and it actually makes love work the way that it's supposed to. In fact, without this ingredient, marriages break. I mean, people may live together for 20, 30, 40 years under the same roof, but there's a brokenness there. Without this ingredient, children and parents aren't as close as they should be. Some kids even grow up and they leave home and they don't want to come back. They may return because they feel guilty or out of manipulation, but that's not what we want. That's not the life that we hope for. Without this ingredient, you may have an amazing job. In fact, you may be successful at your job and gifted at what you do. But all the while, you sense that there's something missing. In fact, you may even leave a really good company. Without this ingredient, people leave churches in search for it. Churches just like Lakeside. In fact, some of you know people that have left because they're searching for this ingredient. You see, the thing that I think is so essential to make love work is connection. The power of connection working itself out in the context of loving relationships. Connection. And without connection, we sort of live in this relational wasteland because life is relationships. I mean, if you think about it, most of the joy in life and most of the pain in life that we experience comes because of our relationships. In fact, if I were to ask you, just think in your mind really quickly, for better or for worse, think of the five most impactful sermons that you've ever heard. I mean, could you do it? You know, could you think of five sermons right off the bat? I mean, I've been preaching for over 20 years. I have a hard time thinking of one or two, you know, maybe last week if I'm lucky. And sermons are good, but they're about 30 minutes a week, not super impactful necessarily. Well, we don't go to church every week, do we? I mean, for realistic, so maybe an hour a month. They're good. But if I were to ask you, think of the five most impactful people that you've known in your life. Could it be a little bit easier? 
I mean, you may be thinking of somebody's face from 30 years ago, and you just remember, I had a coach, I had a coach in middle school that impacted my life. We're made for relationships. Last week, Libby Vincent was talking about an author named Brene Brown. She has a great book called Daring Greatly. I listened to it on audio when I was on sabbatical last summer. I encourage you to to check it out, read it. Brene was one of the speakers at the Leadership Summit, and she talked about this idea of connection as being one of the foundational needs for all humans. And she says, connection is what we are hardwired for. I love that. You know, theologically, we believe this. We believe that the scriptures tell us that we're created out of community, in the image of God, out of relationship for relationship. That our lives are meant to be in relationships. uh, Connection is what we are hardwired for. I love that. And you know, the scriptures, they talk a lot about connection, but oftentimes they'll do it through the lens of relational knowing. This idea of knowing somebody, but not just knowing about them, knowing somebody deeply. We see this from the very beginning in the garden with the first couple. We see this when the greatest leader of the Old Testament climbs the mountain and he's going to get the word of God. God's going to inscribe some things for him. And that's really awesome and really good, but Moses wants even more than that. And so he prays, show me your ways, Lord, that I might know you. I want it to be a deeper connection, God. And then the greatest leader of the New Testament, Paul the Apostle. The, Paul the Apostle was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were a little bit um, intense. You know, there were, there were kind of two camps of, of Pharisees at the time. And he was a part of the more intense one. And, and they had a lot of power. They, they were kind of the lawyers, but they were also the law keepers. They could punish people. I mean, they had all sorts of power in their context, in that culture. And the Apostle Paul was rising through the ranks. And he was getting lots of accolades. His He was the protege of this Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was one of the leading Pharisees of the day. But Paul meets Jesus. And then later on, he'll write to the Philippians and he'll say, you know, all those accolades, all those successes that I had, all those things that supposedly made me right with God, all the good things that I had done, I count them as rubbish when I compare it to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. To know him deeply. And Jesus, at the end of his life, he was praying. He was kind of with his disciples in a small group. And later on, the Apostle John will record these words for his readers. He'll reflect back. And Jesus says, this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Relational, deep, deep knowing through the power of connection. So let me ask you this morning, how are you doing in being connected? I mean, these days, are you feeling more connected or are you feeling more disconnected? And you know, I I believe that if you think about it, you, you probably can come up with some specific ways that you would like to be connected in your life. You may even know those people that you want to get connected with or in some way. 
In fact, you may be sitting here at Lakeside saying, how in a church this size can I get connected? Or maybe, maybe you used to be connected and, and, you know, you were part of a team or you were part of a ministry here at Lakeside and you were rolling up your sleeves. Maybe you spent years raising your kids together and, you know, um, you just went through this phase and now you're older and you're kind of looking around going, hey, life's a little bit different. And for some reason, I just don't feel as connected. And you may be asking yourself, can I get, can I get connected again here? I believe that it's absolutely possible. And one of our hopes at Lakeside is that we would see disconnected people become connected. If you have your Bible, I'd like to invite you to open to Luke chapter 4. And I want to just, as you're turning there, to kind of give you a little bit of context. We had this whole series called Texts That We Did, and it's always helpful to look at historical context. That's one of the hardest things to do in Bible study, but I believe it's one of the richest as well. Jesus grew up in this little town called Nazareth. And Nazareth, it was a, it was a town that you wanted to tell people that you came from. You know, it didn't have a really good reputation, but that's where Jesus was from. That's where his friends were and his family was. That's where his dad, Joseph, worked and made a living to provide for his family. And Jesus now, he's about 30 years old, and he goes through this ceremony of baptism, and then he launches off into this three-year journey that will end on a hillside on a cross outside of Jerusalem. Christians believe that it didn't really end there because we believe that he rose from the dead and he lives forevermore. But that's later on in the story. Now we're sort of at the beginning of the journey in Luke chapter 4. And look down in verse 14. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, which were the Jewish houses of worship, and everyone praised him. I love that. Everyone praised him. Some theologians will tell you that Jesus had a a time in his ministry where he was sort of like the popular Jesus. I like to call him rock star Jesus, you know, because this was the time where the multitudes were following him and he was teaching and it was remarkable. And people would say he teaches way different than our teachers. He has way more authority when he teaches and there's, there's just something special about this Jesus guy. And he was going out and people were being healed. He was transforming lives and more and more people were following him. In fact, sometimes Jesus just wanted to go to a lonely place and connect with his father and pray. Sometimes he would get his disciples and he would say, we need a little break. In fact, this one time they sailed across this lake, but the crowd saw and they ran around to the other side and they were waiting for him. I mean, they wanted rock star Jesus and I love it because it says that Jesus looked at the crowds and had compassion on them. And so this is the Jesus that returns to Galilee. This is the Jesus that goes home. In verse 16, it says, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year 
of the Lord's favor. In this time in Jerusalem or in Israel, it was a radical time. There were all sorts of different groups in Israel, and a lot of them were fighting amongst themselves. You had sort of the conservative uh, Israelites, and they were sort of like the fundamental, radical fundamentals of the day. Now, some people were live and let live, but there were some radicals too. And they wanted to tell everybody else how to live, and they wanted to live by the letter of the law. And then you had sort of your more liberal uh, Jews as well, and they were kind of like, well, we don't like you guys, and they would fight amongst themselves. You had this group called the Zealots, and they, they wanted to have a revolution. They wanted to overthrow the Roman government. You see, Israel used to be this leading country. They were wealthy and people would come to them and they went into captivity and they came out of captivity and now they were small and they were poor and seemingly rather insignificant, but they had a dream. Israel at this time, they were sort of like a pregnant mother and she's just ready and she's expecting to give birth. There was this expectation at this time. There was this hope that this person would return that this person would come and set them free. Because in their minds, there was this sense, even though they were in the land, there was still this feeling, we're still in exile. We're still in captivity. Something needs to save us. Something needs to change. And then we'll be the nation that we were always meant to be, the light of the world. And they were hoping that this anointed one, in Hebrew, this Messiah, in Greek, this Christ, would show up and set them free free and radically change everything. And Jesus comes in to the house of worship and he happens to read from the book of Isaiah one of the most important prophecies in all of the Hebrew scriptures. It's found in Isaiah 61 and it talks about this person, this anointed one who was to come. This is a messianic prophecy. And you sort of have to get the feeling at this point because he's in his hometown. Everybody's listening to him. They know he's an amazing person. And what must it have been like right in that moment? In the next verses, you can almost feel the tension. It says he rolls up the scroll in verse 20, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And then the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. I mean, you could cut the tension with a knife. You could hear a pin drop. What is Jesus going to say? In verse 21, he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I'm the one. I'm the one you've been waiting for. In verse 22, it says that all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. But then they asked this question. They said amongst themselves, isn't this Joseph's son? And again, I I feel like here's where we lose a little bit in the translation. And I sort of like to think that if script writers got a hold of this today, it might go a little bit something like this. Yeah, Jesus, man, that guy can preach. I mean, he is a speaker. There is power. There is something going on here. Wow. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. We know this Jesus. We know where he comes from. 
You know, we, we've heard about this immaculate conception thing. We've heard about this virgin birth thing. And we know the rumors about you, but we know what really happened with Joseph and Mary before you were born. And we know what you are. And there is no way that our Messiah can be that. No way. Jesus responds to them. And he says, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And then he sort of interprets the proverb. He says, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. In other words, I think that they're saying, look, we like rock star Jesus. Just do the healings, put on the show, teach, do all that great stuff. But don't give us this Messiah stuff. Because there's no way it can be you. And besides, that stuff is dangerous. From about 200 B.C. to about 135 or 38 A.D., there was about, biblical scholars will, will, will tell us, there was about 10 or so messianic movements. In fact, in the book of Acts, they talk about a couple of them. A messianic movement was a, was a dangerous thing. It was a revolutionary thing. And usually it ended by the leader of the movement, the so-called Messiah, being killed. Now, sometimes the relative would take over and try to carry it forward. But oftentimes it would just get squashed. And these, these movements kept rising up. And people wanted to take over the Roman government. And finally in 70 AD, the Romans will crush Israel severely. And things will never be the same for them. Ah, just give us rock star Jesus. He's a good teacher. He's a good guy, you know. He teaches a lot of moral things and people's lives are being changed. They're being healed. That's what we want. But don't give us the Messiah stuff. There are two things in the scriptures that that the gospels tell us that amazed Jesus. As far as I know, there's just two times where it says that he was amazed. One of the things that amazed Jesus was the lack of faith in Israel. The other thing that amazed Jesus was the amazing faith of those that weren't a part of Israel. I don't know what kind of commentary God would write in our day about our faith. But I'd like to think that he would be amazed at our faith. That he would be amazed even here at Lakeside of the kind of faith that we have. Jesus continues to dialogue with the people in the synagogue. He says, Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. Elijah was a prophet from from hundreds of years before, and Jesus is going to use him as an illustration. When the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many Israel, and there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha. Elisha took over for Elijah. Yet not one of them was healed, not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. I think what Jesus is saying to them is, You're just like your stubborn ancestors. You're just like them. You don't trust. You don't believe. 
And because of that, they had to go to people outside of Israel. And you are missing the gift of God that is right here for you. Now, for about 25 years, these next three verses, they, they have me puzzled. Um, they have me puzzled because I wonder what it looked like. I would love for somebody someday to make a movie of this. It had to be amazing. In verse 28, it says that all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove them out of the town, and took them to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw them off the cliff. His hometown wants to kill him. This is, this is crazy stuff. And how about this verse in verse 30? But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. I mean, what was that? Like Arnold Schwarzenegger? Like, I'll be back, man. You know, and he just goes on his way. What, was, what did that look like? What was the look on his face? What was the look on the people's face? Was his mother Mary there? I mean, what was she going through? It must have been an amazing moment. I mean, you thought you had a hard time going home. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected. I believe that rejection is probably the biggest hindrance in our lives to connection. There's almost nothing more painful in life than being rejected. And you know what it's like. We experience it as children. And then we grow up, we go through school, we experience it there. We experience in the workplace, in our own families, in our own marriages. We know what rejection is like. To not, to not be invited or to invite and not be um, accepted. To not be noticed, to be overlooked. There's all sorts of ways that we experience rejection. One of the things I love about Jesus is that as as fully human, he understood what it was like to feel what we feel and to go through what we go through. In Isaiah 53, it says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom we people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Rejection is just horrible. You know, men in particular struggle with rejection. We don't like to show it, you know, because the way we often respond to rejection is that we just work harder. We become more successful. We kind of shrug it off and go, I'm just going to be more responsible and get my life together. I'm not even going to deal with that. I think, I think most men, if they're honest with you, will tell you that one of the deepest needs that they have in their life is for a close friend. Some, if they're honest, will say, I don't have one deep friendship. I, I, I can almost guarantee you that every man that's up on the retreat this weekend, deep down, is yearning for connection. For some of them, it was a huge step just to go. I know what it's like because I... I go kicking and screaming to things sometimes, into social situations. I tend to land more on the introverted side. And I have this great job where I talk to people all day long. And it's beautiful. And I love it. And it's fun. And then you're exhausted at the end of the day. You go, oh, man, I'm having trouble, trouble connecting. My wife's the opposite. She's more extroverted. She doesn't talk to people all day long. It's this great thing we got going on. It's beautiful. But it's hard to connect. And you know what it's like.
And so how are you doing in the area of connection this morning? I believe that the way through rejection and the solution for our disconnectedness is love and acceptance. But not just any love and acceptance. It's the kind that has legs. It's the kind that has teeth to it. It's the kind that says, I love you just the way you are and not as you should be because none of us is yet as we should be. It's the Romans 5.8 kind of acceptance where uh, Paul talks and he says, as we were going our own way, as we were yet sinners, he says, Christ died for us. When we didn't even really know our need from him, for, uh, for him and our need to connect with God, that's when he went to the cross for you and for me. It's the kind of love where he looks at us and he says, I love you just the way you are and not as you should be because you are not yet as you should be. And I would add to that, you are not yet as you will be. And love and acceptance doesn't mean, oh, all of a sudden we agree on every little point in life. We agree on all the decisions. It simply means that we let God be God. And we let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit to transform and change people's lives. And we love them today right where they're at. And we open our arms wide to others in spite of the fact that we know what it's like to be rejected. You see, if we're to read the rest of the story, the rest of the book of Luke, we get to see how Jesus responds. In fact, I'd encourage you to do it. Take the rest of this week. Start with chapter 5. In chapter 5, you're going to see Jesus reaching out to a fisherman, and they make a connection. And then you go through and on and on and on, and you see how he works all of this out. In fact, let me read to you kind of what I see happening in the life of Jesus, because I don't think he just gives up and says, forget it. What we see is him initiating. He initiates with others, and and he says, follow me, and some do, and some don't, but connection happens, and Jesus makes room in his life for others, and he's willing to keep trying. Along the way, he's willing to stop and listen to people, and he shares meals with people, sometimes with people that are very different than himself, and he gets criticized for it. Near the end of his life, he spends a lot of time with a few people, and he goes deep with them. In fact, we might even say that Jesus and his disciples had sort of a small group that they entered into together. And when he's betrayed, and when he's lonely, and when he becomes disconnected because of what's going on and things have changed, he entrusts himself to his father, and he starts again. One person at a time, all the way down to you, all the way down to me. And then he says, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Can we do that? Can we go out and try to live the type of life that Jesus lived, even though he knew what it was like to be rejected and have that challenge of trying to connect? What would it be like? What would it look like for hundreds of people in this region to go from disconnectedness to connectedness? What would it be like for just the 8 to 15 people that are in your life to go from disconnectedness to connectedness? 
that oikos that Pastor Brad's been talking about, that household, those neighbors. Maybe it's the person down the street or maybe it's the person that um, you work with or maybe it's somebody right in your own family that feels disconnected. What would it look like to live out how Jesus has lived? I don't know exactly what it would look like, but I sort of like to think that it would look a little bit something like this. You know, when I think about the state of our world today, I, I don't go to the arrival gate at the airport. I don't, I don't think about that. What I think about, actually, is the church. The church, when it's working right, when it's working well, and general opinion about the church, you know, is that essentially it's a place that is hypocritical, overjudgmental. We want all your finances. And maybe we're useless, in some cases, maybe even destructive. But I see something else. I see connections happening everywhere, even at Lakeside Church. I see it every time I watch those kiddos run into Kids Fest, and the workers there have their arms open wide. And they bless our kids, and they bless the parents of our kids. I see it in our newly relaunched seniors ministry where people are connecting in that life phase or in our recovery ministry that's relaunched. I see it when I hear about my daughter's high school small group and I watch the way that her leaders accept her just as she is. I see connection happen every single time I walk into the lake or I walk into a pool and I have the privilege of baptizing somebody. And I know, despite what people say, that transformation is still happening, and it's beautiful, and it's amazing, and there's deep relationships being formed. And so let's go and do likewise. One of the things that I see around, around Lakeside Church right now that's a really a bright spot is this thing that's been going on for a couple of years over in the block at 10 o'clock. And we're calling it now the family room. It's a worship gathering. It's smaller. It's designed differently. It's a unique place of connection, and it's just a beautiful thing that's happening. And I want to invite Dan Ripple, who's, who's been leading that gathering, to come up and share a little bit about it. So will you welcome Dan Ripple up? So, Dan, why don't you tell us, you've been on this journey for a while, and uh, some neat things have been happening, so give us a little bit of the flavor. What's so special about the family room? Yeah, it's, um, 
it's just a, it's a great place to connect. And we were talking about connection this morning, and there's just something about being down in that venue on Sunday mornings that just really gets the community going. Um, a couple years ago, we at Lakeside, we looked at our community and said, what, what could we do better? How could we help more people connect? And one of the spots that we saw that we weren't really doing a whole lot in is families. How do we help families connect with families? And so one of the things that we looked at is what would it look like to do a gathering that had families in mind, had, had kids in the gathering, and, and um, allowed families to connect with one another on Sunday mornings. And so that's where that venue was born from. And it really is, it's, it's an incredible community. It, it's like doing church in your living room, really. And you see a lot of people, I mean, that clip where people were hugging and there was not so much kitchen going on down there, but really there's, there's, there's a really a connection with people who see each other every week in a small community, know what's going on in each other's lives, and um, there, there really is a tight connection down there. Mm, that's awesome. And, and, you know, one of the things that we try to do at Lakeside as leaders is we try to identify the bright spots and, and basically ask, what is this Holy Spirit doing? What's God doing these days? And we try to just get on board with it, and we've noticed that God is doing some things. And so uh, we have some hopes and we have some dreams for this venue called the Family Room. And so tell us a little bit about some of our hopes for this. Yeah, well, our, I mean, our hope is to do more of it. Our hope is to be able to someday, hopefully in the block, um, have five or six gatherings going on on a weekend. Um, small communities of people who rally around a, a purpose or a theme um, and really help people to connect this way. We've got great large gatherings, and but some people connect really well in, in small gatherings too. So coming up in about two weeks, or two week, actually two weeks from today, we're going to be launching um, what we're calling the family room down there. And actually we're changing two big things about what we're already doing. We're moving the, from 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock so that we can line up right with this gathering. Um, and then the message, right now it's live teaching. The message is going to be via a live video feed. So actually we'll be, we'll be coming in right at the same time that, that the message is being done in here. And um, we'll be joining in with you guys to be able to experience the same message together. And our hope is that as that model grows, that we're able to then duplicate even more uh, so that our, our church can grow as you know, small communities and big communities. Hmm. And so, so for you guys, we realize that th- this is your gathering, and, and that's beautiful. And so what we just want to ask is, would you pray for this? As we do this together as a church, would you pray that God would multiply these venues? And there's just something special going on that we want to see people have a place where they can get connected, just like many of you have gotten connected. And so we want you to pray for that. In fact, can I pray for that right now? Yeah, All right, would you guys join me in prayer? Father, thanks so much that you initiated with each of us. And God, you're, you're a God that wants to be in relationship with us, deep relationship. You want us to experience the power of connection with you and with one another. And so we pray for that at Lakeside. And we pray that as we uh, launch this venue and, and uh, move into this new chapter with the family room, that you would bless that. That, you, that we would see people getting connected and we would see lives changed and that we would see that multiplied over and over again all around Lakeside Church. Father, thank you that you help us to fight through the difficulties of disconnection for whatever reason, especially when we feel rejected. And through your love and acceptance, God, we can be connected to you again. So thanks for that, God, and we pray all this in your name. Amen.